Hello and welcome to Joshua Space, a podcast all about books. Today I had the absolute privilege of interviewing Edward Ashton, the author of Mickey 7, one of my favorite books from 2022. If you have not yet read it, I highly encourage you to do so. And if you want to support this podcast, you can purchase Mickey 7 through my bookshop.org page. Without further ado, let's go ahead and listen into the interview. Well, thank you so much for joining today, Ed. It's a pleasure to have you on this podcast to be able to talk about your novel, Mickey 7. Thank you very much. I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today. Absolutely. So do you want to tell us all what Mickey 7 is about? Sure. Uh, So the short answer is that Mickey 7 is uh, a book about a person whose job is to die. The slightly longer answer uh, is Mickey 7 is a speculative novel. Uh, It's set about a thousand years in our future. And at this time, there have been some bad things that have happened on Earth that have forced humanity to, for their own survival, to to spread out to other star systems, other planets. Uh, It turns out that's uh, difficult and dangerous thing to do. Uh, It's not really easy to establish a human presence on a planet that uh, maybe doesn't have the right atmospheric chemistry, maybe doesn't have the ability to let us grow food, maybe already has someone living there who doesn't want us coming in. Uh, And so there are a lot of very sort of dangerous to suicidal jobs that have to be done to make one of these expeditions work. Uh, And so these expeditions employ people who are called expendables. Uh, And an expendable is a person whose job it is to do those suicidal things, those super dangerous things, when the, the need arises with the compensation that if they die, they can be reconstructed. Their body can be reconstructed and, and their personality and their memories can all be transferred to the new body. So it's, it's, a, it's a crappy kind of immortality. Um, it, it sounds at first like a, a great deal until you think about two important points. First of all, dying hurts. Uh, and, and who really wants to do that all the time? And second of all, maybe a little less obvious, there is a philosophical question that has bedeviled us for hundreds of years already. This, this was uh, it's referred to as the teletransport paradox. It was first really stated in 1755, if you can believe that. So this is something people have been thinking about for a long time. Uh, and the basic question is, if you could do what we're supposing you could do here, if you could recreate a body exactly like yours, transfer all of your personality, your hopes, your dreams, your hatred of strawberry ice cream and your love, electronic dance music, all of that gets transferred into this new body. Is that you? Or is that just another person running around getting his hands all over your stuff? Uh, And that question is the central question of Mickey's life, uh, who's the protagonist of this book, who is a a designated expendable. At the beginning of the book, uh, Mickey has already died six times on his current expedition. So he, he knows what the deal is. He, he understands the terms. Uh, he's realized that maybe signing on to this expedition was not the smartest thing that he ever did. But once you are uh, signed on to this job, it is one you literally can never leave. You can't even die to get out of it. There's no way to get out. And so he is, uh, he's trapped. Uh, and at the beginning of the book, he goes on a mission and he is presumed lost. He falls down a crevasse. He's trapped. Uh, his supposed best friend, who's the pilot who, who's brought him here, refuses to try to help him because it would be dangerous and he's not an expendable and he doesn't want to risk his life for someone who can just get recreated tomorrow morning anyway. So what's the big deal? Uh, So he leaves him, abandons him, and then Mickey inconveniently doesn't die. Uh, And when he eventually makes his way back to the colony base, he finds that a new instantiation of him has already been created. And that's uh, a major no-no for lots of reasons in this society. And so that's that's sort of where his troubles begin and and things, if you can believe it, get worse and worse for him from there. So that that that's the basic setup for the book. Awesome. So what part of the story did you first come up with? Like, what was the first inspiration for this novel? Um, this this novel really came from a, 
a fascination I've always had with the teletransport paradox. This is something I can remember thinking about going all the way back to when I was a little kid uh, watching Star Trek. You know, in Star Trek, they have the transporter beam, right? These guys, they get on the transporter beam and they sort of shimmer and dissolve and then they appear like down on the planet. So even when I was five years old looking at this, it was pretty obvious to me that they weren't actually being transported, right? What's happening is that they're getting dissolved and then a new them is being created someplace else, like yeah. from local materials, right? And it struck me even then that that's not a great idea, right? Because if you think about testing a system like that, think about building that kind of system. The first time you do it, you're going to be pretty cautious about how you use it, right? You don't just dissolve the guy and then like the machine doesn't work. That would be bad. Yeah. So, what's, so the idea is, right, you're scanning these people, you're figuring out like where every atom is in their body and then transmitting that information to rebuild them on the other end. So what you're going to do the first time is you're going to scan the guy. You're going to find out where all of his atoms are and whatever. You're going to transmit that information, but you're not going to dissolve him then, right? You're going to wait until they call you from the other end, like Alexander Graham Bell and say, oh, yeah. Yeah, he showed up. He's here. He's fine. And at that point, you, the person who is getting transported, do you get in the dissolving pit? Do you get into the acid bucket? Because like you're, you're fine. You're on the other end. You came through. So go get dissolved. Uh, and my answer to that was like, no, <laughs> no I'm, I'm not getting in the acid vat. I get that that guy's over there, but that's not me. You all think he's me. He acts like me. He looks like me. He thinks he's me. I don't think he's me. And that's yeah. That, that, that's, I said, that's a, that's a problem that has kind of chewed at me on and off. And I've written a number of, I've written some short stories that have tried to tackle this. Um, and I guess I, I felt like it needed a longer treatment. And that's, that's really what Mickey seven is. Hey, so when did you first start to come up with the plot of this novel, as far as them going to different um, stars or galaxies and star systems to colonize different planets, and then the expendables, like, how did you come up with all of that? I mean, the idea of the expendable was the first thing that was in, before I'd written a word of it, that was the nugget that I, that I started with. Yeah. Um, I actually wrote the first chapter of this book in, I want to say 2014, like the end of 2014. Um, and I, I wrote probably maybe 15,000 words of it. I had just wow. sold my first novel, which is called Three Days in April to HarperCollins. Uh, and I was sort of looking for what my next project was going to be. And I was playing around with a few different concepts and this was one of them. And I, I wrote about 15,000 words. Um, and I got to a point where I wasn't sure where to go. And the other project I was working on, I was sure where to go. So I kind of set Mickey 7 aside and finished that project at that time. That also uh, was published by HarperCollins. And then I moved on. I did a few other things. Um, but Mickey Seven was always sort of hanging around in the back of my head as something that I, I wanted to work on. And so uh, in 2019, I, I was sort of, again, looking for what my next project was going to be. And I, I basically pulled that first 15,000 words of Mickey Seven out of the trunk. Uh, and the rest of the book, I, I guess somehow in the back of my head, the prop, plot problem that I had had back when I first started working on it had, had resolved itself. Uh, I saw where the book needed to go, uh, and and it, it really it was about four months that the rest of the book sort of flowed out onto the page. Um, sent it to my agent; he liked it. Um, sent it around to a few people; they liked it too. Uh, and and you know it, it got picked up by Rebellion Publishing, then it got picked up by Warner Brothers, got optioned by Warner Brothers, uh, and then it got picked up by my North American publisher Macmillan, uh, and you know things have sort of snowballed from there. That's awesome. So when you first 
pulled the 15,000 words back out, did you have to kind of go through and change anything? Or did you already have it where you like the way it started? You enjoy it? Like you didn't really have to do too much to it. Um, you know, I, I revise continuously while I'm writing. My, my, my basic process when I sit down to work uh, is my first step is to go back over the first thousand or 2000 words or the last 2000 words or whatever that I just written and go through and do a revision pass. And I and so it's it's sort of a continuously evolving thing the the, the story as I go. Uh, I definitely did some pretty heavy revising to those to those first few chapters um, when when I when I picked it back up in 2019 um, because I like I said I when I wrote those I didn't know where the story was going to go when I picked it back up I did uh, and to make the story go where you want it to go you have to drop little bits and pieces in the early chapters little breadcrumbs so that when you get to big plot point in chapter 12, the reader isn't surprised. You never want your readers to be, and sometimes you want to be a little surprised, but you never want your readers to read something and say, wow, that doesn't make sense compared to what happened before. Yeah. You know, if your character is going to make a choice, you need to have put the seed of that choice in that character 10 chapters ago. So that when he does whatever he has to do, the reader says, oh yeah, that's boy, that's Birdo. That's exactly what he would do in that situation. Uh, so I had to drop a lot of those breadcrumbs in those early chapters to make what I needed to happen in the later chapters seem organic and, and, and work cleanly. And so that, that, that was, that was probably the first month of, of the rework before I could start, you know, creating new new text and new chapters. Nice. Did you, through writing everything, did you have a specific character that was a little bit more challenging to write, whether it was the character's personality or just the scenes that they were in? Um, I, I mean, I, I like, I like all my characters. Um, but if, if there were one in this book that was the most difficult to work or the most challenging, I would say to work with, I think it would probably be Marshall. Um, I'm uncomfortable with villains. I'm uncomfortable with anti, I, I have a sort of fundamental belief that we all think we're the hero. Nobody thinks they're a villain. Nobody sets out to be a villain in their lives. Even people who do unmistakable evil on some level think they're doing the right thing, right? They think that they're helping or making things better. Um, and, you know, unless, you know, something just like completely whack wrong with your brain. Um, and so Marshall, obviously he's the antagonist in this book. Um, but I had to write, and, and Mickey hates him. And the book is told in Mickey's voice. And so I had to write Marshall through Mickey in such a way that it was apparent to the reader, which was not apparent to Mickey, that Marshall actually, in his own mind, was trying to do what's best for the colony. He's trying to do what's best for his people. Mickey doesn't see it that way, but I needed the reader to see it that way. And that, that you know, if, if you were asking for what is the biggest challenge of the book, I would say that's probably it. Yeah, that would, I feel like, especially writing in first person, that'd be difficult to make the reader see something that the main character doesn't necessarily see. Exactly. Yep. Are you most comfortable writing in first person or did it just kind of been you like the way it sounded? Um, I, I try not to get pigeonholed into one particular point of view, one particular. So I, I've read the, the project I'm working on right now is a tight third person. Um, this, this series obviously is first person, um, three days in April, um, which was my first novel, was also first person. Um, my second novel was, was third person. So I, 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 I try to fit the voice. I try to fit the perspective to the needs of the story. So for this book, Mickey Seven, this is really about Mickey's inner life. I mean, that's really a, a lot of the heart of the book is what's going on inside of his head. Because again, to an external observer, 
the Mickey that comes out of the tank when he gets reconstructed is exactly like the original Mickey. It, it is the original Mickey. So if I was telling this perspective, this book from someone else's perspective, you wouldn't see what the conflict is because the conflict has to come from inside. It, it's Mickey's emotions and Mickey's feelings about what's happening to him that are really the source of the conflict of the book. So it had to be first person in my book. Yeah, that, make, that makes a lot of sense. And I think it's interesting to kind of see the psychology behind himself when he's processing, especially there's certain scenes where he really has to process a lot and kind of understand what's going on. Mm -hmm. And I think it's very fascinating to kind of see into his brain while he's dealing with all this. Yeah, it's much harder to do that from a third person perspective. You know, it's, for something like that, you almost have to let the character tell his own story. Yeah. And then I saw recently there's going to be a book too. Uh, that is true. Uh, it's actually already up for pre-sale. Um, I strongly encourage you to order it. Um, it this, this is maybe if you're not in the publishing world, it may not be apparent to you how important pre-orders are because every publisher has a, a sort of a stable of books that they're going to bring out every year and they have a marketing budget and their marketing budget is not as big as their stable of books. And so they have to distribute those limited resources across the books that they're bringing out. One of the metrics they use to do that is pre-orders. So the more pre-orders a book has, that in their minds, sort of that's more potential for that book, and they'll devote more resources to that book. Um, so if you like Mickey Seven, you're interested in reading the next book, and if you'd like to like, see a third book, which is also, you know, I've, I've already put a proposal in for a third. Um, yeah, pre-ordering is a really good way to sort of make that happen. Uh, the, the the name of the book is uh, Antimatter Blues. Uh, it's available in you know all the places where you would where you would uh, buy a book electronically. Right now, it's obviously not in bookstores. It actually comes out in uh the beginning of march next year nice so is it going to be following the same characters and main character on the planet or is it going to be a little bit of a different story no it's a direct sequel okay. it picks up um again told directly from mickey's perspective uh it picks up about a year after the events of mickey seven okay nice and so you mentioned you have a third book proposal. Do you envision it only being a trilogy or do you envision this kind of being a longer series? Um, it's very difficult to plan for that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, again, it, it, this may not be super apparent if you're not sort of involved in the publishing business, but um, publishers, when they look at, at books in a series, they more or less assume that each book in a series will sell some fraction of the sales of the book before it. And so they look yeah. at this, those sales trajectories, where they're going up or where they're going down to determine whether they want to do additional books in a particular series. So particularly if you're like Brandon Sanderson, he can do whatever he wants, right? He, 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 he can say, I'm writing, I'm going to write a 50 book series and his publishers will say, thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, I'm not that guy. Yeah. Uh, so I, I can't do that. Um, so how many books are going to be in a particular series is going to be determined by how the other books in the series are received by the audience. So because of that, I am very careful to make each book a complete unit, a complete story. I don't leave any cliffhangers. I'm not going to say you're, you're not going to get a to be continued at the end of any of my books. Every one of them stands alone, um, but also, you know, leaves, it leaves enough that I can write another book if I want to. And if my publishers want to have it and if yeah. the, you know, if the audience wants to read it. So um, sort of the nature of Mickey's life, you could write a lot of books in the series if you wanted to. Um, it, it's just a question of really what the appetite is from my publisher, from, from the audience, uh, and, you know, and, and how long my interest holds in this particular thing. I mean, I, I, I'm not somebody who wants to spend the rest of my life writing about the same characters. 
So well, I know for me, I, that's one of the reasons I love Mickey seven, because it does read like a standalone. You finished the book and I was satisfied. I wanted more. There's a lot of questions that still kind of go around the head and you want, you want certain things to be more resolved, but I felt like it ended nicely. So I didn't realize there was going to be a second book until I think about two weeks ago is when I first saw that there had been something on Goodreads that there was going to be a book too. And I was like, oh, okay. I'm all on board for this. <laughs> Well, I, I really appreciate that. Um, that is exactly what I was shooting for. So I, I really appreciate you letting me know that that, that kind of landed with you. That's, that's where I was going. Uh, you say you weren't sure if there's going to be another book when you finish it. Neither was I. So that, you know, that, that works out well. Um, you know, when, it, when I finished this book, uh, it was not under contract. Mickey Sim was written on spec. Uh, so it was, not, it was not under contract when I, when I wrote it. So I didn't even know if my agent would be able to sell this manuscript, let alone like additional follow-ons to this. Um, so the, the idea of doing the sequel didn't come up until, you know, we had all of our contracts in place for Mickey seven and it was obviously, um, all copy edited and, and, you know, no, no opportunity to go in and like add in little cliffhangers for the next book at that point. It was, it was, you know, it was completely baked. Yeah. And then I know earlier you mentioned it also, um, sold to Warner brothers. Yes. Uh, yeah, that, that was, I guess I didn't realize at the time how odd this entire sequence of events was. Um, so yeah, the, the, the book was picked up um, by Rebellion. So I, my previous books were with HarperCollins, right? Uh, the imprint that I was working with at HarperCollins actually shut down. Uh, they, they, they closed up business. So, you know, I needed, that's my idiot dog. Um, so I, so I, needed, I needed someplace else to go. Uh, so when I, when I had finished this book, uh, like I said, my agent chopped it around to a bunch of places. Um, the two places it showed the most initial interest were Rebellion, uh, who is my UK publisher, uh, and Angry Robot Books. They were they were they were bidding on it as well. We we wound up going with Rebellion with that, and I thought that was that was great. Um, and it would have probably just stayed at Rebellion, and that would have been that, um, which which again would have been wonderful. They're they're a great publisher, and I really like working with the editors there. Um, but shortly after that, um, I, we we found out that Warner Brothers was interested in optioning the book, which ordinarily they don't do until the books out and publish right? that's not ordinarily a thing that happens that was that was back in march of 2020 so that this this was quite a while ago uh and it was after that 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 we got picked up by mcmillan uh by st martin's press uh and so that's that's how the the north american contract came into place uh, and again all the all the foreign contracts we've got those have all been subsequent to the the movie option and then with the option itself these studios they option probably 20 properties for every one that they ever if you talk to people who've been doing this for a long time, um, people say, oh yeah, I've, I've, you know, I've sold two or three options. Obviously none of them got made. I mean, that's just sort of a thing that people say like, yeah, I've, I've sold it. But I mean, obviously it hasn't gotten turned into a movie. Uh, so when it, this, this was about two years that we had the option out there. And I was sort of assuming in the back of my head that that was all there was going to be, um, that it wouldn't get made into a movie because how often do those things happen? And then I was sitting at my breakfast table and my wife was sitting across from me uh, and my phone dinged and I picked it up and it was a text from my agent and it had a little link in it said, you might want to click on this. And like, I'm thinking, is this a phishing attack? I don't know what's going on here. It's just a random link, but like, uh, he's never fished me before. I'm sure it's fine. So I click on the link and it's 
that Robert Pattinson has signed on with Bong Joon-ho to do this movie and this is going to be the next project, Mickey Seven. My wife looked at my face and said, oh my God, who died? Because apparently <laughs> I just went white. Um, I, I, and I was like, nope, nope, everybody's still alive. I almost just did, but everybody else is fine. Um, everybody, It's not a problem, but they're actually making this film. Uh, and so th- things have... Uh, Things have been extremely strange since then. Things, 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 things have been a little crazy. That's awesome. Do you get to have a little bit of con- creative control with like the script and the way things will be done, or not too much? No. Okay. No. Tra- Director Bong is—he uh, is a brilliant man, um, but he is someone who wants full control of his projects. So I, I had a I had about a two-hour call with him when we first got into these discussions. Um, and he, I mean, he knew my book better than I did. That It was real. it was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. He had, he had like illustrations of the different um, scenes. He had ideas in his head for what the, he was asking me questions about like, how do creepers reproduce? I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, in fact, I guess when a mother creeper and a father creeper love each other very much, they lie down together. And I don't know, I, it's not part of the story. So I didn't think about it, but he was thinking about this stuff. And he did, you know, you ask about creative control. He did ask me if there was one chapter or one scene in the book that I really wanted to be in the movie. And there was, there was one scene. I'm not going to tell you what it was because I wanted to be surprised. Um, but he, he did, he did say that he would, he would include that one, but he, he made it very clear at that time. I had written a 350 page novel. He's writing a 120 page script. Things are going to, they have to, it's a different medium. It's a different art form and things are going to be different. And um, you know, if it were someone else who were doing it, I might be nervous about that. But with with director Bong, no, I, I'm not. I'm not concerned. I 100% trust that he is going to do an absolutely amazing job with the script and with everything else going on with this project. I think it's going to be fantastic. Yeah, I think that's always the to me that's very fascinating when a book does get sold to a producer um, or someone who's going to make it into a movie because. Like you said, a lot of times it doesn't happen. It, the rights get sold and that's it. And then nothing really comes of it. And then sometimes something does come of it. And so in the case of Mickey 7, it's getting turned into a movie, which is amazing and I'm so incredibly excited for. And one of the things I do think is very fascinating is how depending on whether it's the company or the director, sometimes the author is heavily involved or in the case of Mickey 7, you're not really involved in the process of the making of the movie, which I think it's really kind that the director still kept you in the loop and asked if there was any specific scene or chapter that you wanted to make sure ended up in the movie. And not that he had to do that, but it was just nice that he offered even. Well, I mean, I think there there are different power balances depending on who's on either side of the table. And I want to be very clear. I didn't demand that director Bond keep that one scene. Yeah, that was 100% his choice. He didn't have to do that. That was just a gift that he gave to me. And I'm extremely grateful that he did that. So you know, if if you are, if you are Brandon Sanderson, or you're um, Stephen King, or, or, or someone else who already is extremely famous has an enormous fan base and so forth you probably have a little more leverage in those discussions than if you are like me uh who is is not super famous and does not have you know that kind of leverage and that kind of power in the industry um you know maybe someday who knows um but that just you know that that that's not where i am right now and i'm just i'm very grateful for everything that's occurred yeah and i think it's interesting it is changing a 350 page novel into a 120 page manuscript and so I think a lot of times people always equate the the movies aren't always as good as the books, but it's also, it's a lot shorter. You can't put every, I mean, we're not going to be in the theater for six hours. As much as we all might want that, 
that's not going to happen. That's that doesn't sell as much as a two hour or two and a half hour movie would. And so I always think it's kind of that aspect a lot of people forget about because you do have to cut a lot. And it's amazing when you do get a good director and a, a good producer, you they're able to capture the essence of the book. They're able to capture everything that you see and you want to see from the book on the screen. Mm -hmm. Even if they're cutting scenes out, it doesn't necessarily feel like a huge loss. Yeah, well, I mean, there, there's a lot that goes into a book that doesn't translate into a visual medium, right? It's like it's a different art form, uh, and and all that has to go. And there and there are things that you can do visually that you just can't do in a book. So new things are going to be added, probably. That I mean, I would not be surprised to see you know new characters, new scenes brought in in director Bong's script that just aren't anywhere at all in 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 the book. Uh, you know, I've been really interested in looking at the casting, watching watching the casting. Um, you know, it's pretty obvious that, and I want to be clear, I don't have any insider knowledge at all about what's going on with this. I'm, I'm speculating just as much as anybody else, but it's it's pretty obvious, you know, Robert Pattinson and Naomi Aki are going to be Mickey and Nasha. That, that, seems, that seems pretty clear to me. But after that, it's not clear who these other folks are going to be playing. You know, who is, you know, who is Mark Ruffalo going to play? Who is Tony Collette going to play? Um, if I look at the cast of characters in the book, it's not obvious to me who those will be. And, and, and with Tony Collette in particular, you know, I wonder if it might be somebody that director Bong wrote into the script who just did not appear in the book, which would, would be really interesting to see. You know, it's, it's all going to be, I, I anticipate I'm going to learn all this um, when, you know, when the lights come up at the premiere uh, a year and a half from now. And it's, I'm, I'm going to be just as surprised as, as anybody else as to what actually shows up on the screen. That's awesome. And I think to a certain extent, it's kind of fun to be surprised in that capacity as well. Yeah, as long as it's a good surprise. Right? <laughs> <laughs> surprises and bad surprises. You know, it's, as long as it's a good one, it's good. Exactly. <laughs> so one of the things I always ask people, which not everyone enjoys this question, but do you have a favorite book or a favorite few books? Um, I have a long list of favorite books, both new and old. Um, so if, if I wanted to, to pull just a couple out of, out of the arc, so if, if I want to reach way back, um, George R. R. Martin, before he wrote Song of Ice and Fire, which I don't particularly care for, uh, wrote a series of science fiction novels in the 70s. Um, which were set in a far future sort of universe. Um, there, there are a number of really good ones, but the best of them is called Dying of the Light, which is something that just, I read it when I was probably, you know, 10 or 11 years old. I've reread it four or five times since then. It just really, really hits hits home for me. It's an absolutely brilliant book. Um, going back a little further, even Clifford D. Simak has a book called Shakespeare's Planet, um, which is, it's a real, it's a thin novel, like a lot of Simak's work. It's, it's not something that's a doorstop, um, but it's, it's philosophical and it hooks into your emotions. The ending is like, I still can't read it without crying. It's like an absolute gut punch. Um, highly recommend that. Um, if you look at more recent stuff, it, a, a book that I thought did not get nearly as much publicity and nearly as much probably, I mean, I don't know what her sales numbers were, um, but not as much as she deserved probably, uh, was The Raven Tower by Ann Leckie. Um, this, this is um, something she obviously branched off in a very different direction than Ancillary Justice, which is maybe her more, more well-known uh, series, uh, but it's, it's a fantasy novel. Um, the main characters are a talking rock and a sentient swarm of mosquitoes. And I mean, how can you possibly go wrong with that, right? That's, that's, that's a setup they can't miss. 
Um, the thing I really appreciate about that book uh, is that it has, you know, like a lot of fantasy systems have sort of magic systems in them. Uh, and, and that can be dangerous because if you uh, allow sort of untrammeled magic, if you let have a character who can just sort of make things happen, uh, there's no conflict because it's like an overpowered superhero. They can do whatever they want. Um, so she has a magic system in the Raven Tower, which is it's almost intuitive. It makes sense how it works and it has very clear rules and you can see what characters can do and what they can't and clearly why they can and can't do the different things. And to me, that 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 makes it, I know there, there are some people who disagree with this feeling, but I've, I've always felt that that makes it a much stronger, uh, much, much stronger work. And, it, and again, she she develops her character so well that you 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 want them to succeed and you know that they're not going to in a lot of cases. And it's it's just really, um, really great emotional hooks, especially at the end of the book. So th those those are ones that I would definitely recommend everybody read. Nice. That's a really good list of books. I'm definitely going to have to check them out. And so do you think, is there any specific book that you would give credit to for kind of your desire for wanting to become an author? I know earlier in the interview, you mentioned Star Trek and how that really began your fascination with transporting a human and kind of recreating the human body. So would you say that there's anything else really that inspired you deeply to start writing or to have the desire to start writing? I mean, that that's tough because I've always wanted to be a writer. I can't ever remember not wanting to be a writer. I mean, my my parents moved some years ago from the house that I grew up in to, to, a, to a new house. And they, you know, when you move, you pull out a bunch of boxes from different places. And they sent me a folder of little stories that I wrote when I was in second and third grade. And um, they were grim. <laughs> I, was, I was a dark little bastard. I Man, I, they were... Uh, yeah, so th this was like the early 80s. So a lot of, lot of nuclear war factored very heavily into my like eight-year-old brain, apparently. Um, but I, I, I wrote my first novel when I was 12. I've still got that. It's like 200 pages of cursive on line notebook paper, still legible, amazingly enough. Um, so I, I, yeah, it, it, like if, it, picking out a moment where I like decided I want to be a writer, I don't know, five minutes after I was born, like, <laughs> yes. That's awesome. I know you mentioned you have two other works that you previously published with HarperCollins. And then before you were published through HarperCollins, did you have any books that you kind of wrote to the full manuscript and then it just kind of never got yep. published and it helped as a stepping stone or was the first book you published the first kind of full novel that you finished? That was that was the first three days in April was my first attempt at writing a novel. Um, I, I, I'd written a lot of short. I saw my first short story professionally in 1989. So, you know, I've, I've been at this for a while. Um, I still consider that one of my, one of my best sales, actually. They, they paid me in pizza. I got, uh, it was, it was to the newsletter of an Italian sausage company and they paid me in a coupon for a three foot by three foot sheet pizza. Um, I, I, I was really happy about it at the time. I realized later when I started selling stories for money that, that, uh, money can be exchanged for goods and services. That's a tip for readers. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know if you guys are aware of that. Um, so with, with money, I could buy lots of pizza and different types of pizza. And once I realized that, you know, the world just opened up for me. It was, it was fantastic. Um, but yeah, I, I, I've, I've sold, I don't know, 40 or 50 short stories to various places, um, literary stories, um, speculative stuff, fantasy stuff, you know, pretty, pretty, pretty broad range of things. Um, and, and then said so in about in 2013, uh, I, I decided to, to take a crack at writing something longer. And that's, you know, that's where things have, have progressed since then. Nice. So do you still write a lot of short stories or are you focused more on writing novels now? Not recently. So I'm, you know, for the last three years, I've been under contract. 
Um, so that's yeah. like I said, prior to Mickey seven, all my, well, actually my second book was under contract as well, but the, the, the majority of the stuff I'd done was, was written on spec. So when you're on spec, you can write whatever you want. You know, like I feel like writing a short story today, you can do that. If you like writing a novel, you do that too. Um, but you know, last year I had a novel due in September that I'd already partly gotten paid for. And so like, you can't miss on that. And I have one due now, um, that I've already partly gotten paid for, and I'm going to have another one next year. So when, when you're in that kind of situation, it's hard to pull your focus away because, you know, like someone's paying you to do this. And, and if you, if you miss your deadline on this, you're going to be in trouble. Whereas if you like, don't write a short story today, nobody really cares. So yeah, when it comes to deadlines, well, backing up from deadlines, are you more of a, when you're writing your novels, are you more of a planner? Or are you more of a pantser? Um, I go back and forth. Um, I used to be very strict about not doing outlines. Um, and then I did, I actually did an outline for Mickey seven when I picked it back up and realized, wow, that makes things a lot easier. <laughs> really, <laughs> that really helps quite a bit. Um, in, in terms of not having to do rewrites in terms of not having to throw away entire sections that didn't work. Uh, so I, I, I've been, I've been a little more diligent about planning things out, but I still like in the project I'm working on right now, I started with a, a pretty detailed synopsis and outline and I've already diverged in a bunch of, because you're just, you're writing and you're in the middle of a scene and you're like, wow, this would be cool if I did this instead. And then you do that. And then that forces something down the road to change as well. It's just like sort of the branching of a tree. And, uh, you know, you wind up on this leaf when you thought you were going to be over here and it's, you know, it, it's just sort of an, an organic development. So ho hopefully it doesn't bug my editor too much when he realizes that the synopsis I sent him is like wildly divergent <laughs> from the book he received. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping he's not too upset about that. Yeah. Are you pretty good on deadline or do, cause I know like for me personally, when I have a deadline for just anything in general, I'm a procrastinator. I will wait until it gets closer to, which is not healthy, but I will wait until it gets closer to the deadline and then I can knock it out quickly and I can get what I need done done, but I kind of wait to the last minute. So how are you when it comes to deadlines? I'm the exact opposite of that. Okay. When I'm, when I'm under deadline, I like, there's always a little voice in the back of my head saying, you should really be working on this. You should definitely be working on this. And so, um, so my last Animatter Blues was due in September and I turned it in in June. Um, this, this book I'm working on right now uh, is due in December. I will have a draft finished by the middle of August and then like how much revising can I possibly do I'll probably turn it in in October or something so you know I, I try to stay a few a few months ahead because you never know when something's not going to work right Some, something that always um, sort of hangs over me John Scalzi has a story um, you know Kaiju Preservation Society that he just published um, that wasn't supposed to be the book that came out this year he was under contract for another book. And I apparently, like, at least according to what he said in his blogs, he's working on this, working on this, and then realizes two months before it's due, this book sucks and it's not going to work and I can't do it. And he apparently actually sent a message to his editor, like he's never missed a deadline, never missed a submission. And he's like, it's not going to happen. I'm not going to get you this book. And then I think he said he sent that email on a Friday. And then on Saturday, he woke up with the idea for the for Kaiju Preservation Society. And he banged it out in like five weeks and sent it in and actually hit his deadline, um, which which you which you thought he was going to miss. I don't want to be that guy, but if it if it turns out that like a project has so if this book that I'm working on right now, I don't think it's going to happen. But if I get to the end, I'm like, wow, this is terrible. <laughs> I want to make sure I've got a cushion where I can like hurry up and go back and because I always have 
I have two other synopses that I've already written up for other books sort of sitting on my waiting pile. So if, if this one crashed and burned for some reason, I want to be able to snatch one of those up and like, okay, I guess, I guess I'm doing nothing but writing for the next eight weeks and, and, and bang it out. So with the synopsis that you have written out, when you first get an idea, do you just kind of write the synopsis in a couple of things and then keep working on what you're doing? Or do you write a little bit more and you kind of write a little bit in that project and then come back? I would never try to write a synopsis until I know, at a minimum, until I know my characters. Okay. I'll typically, I'll typically like the, this one that I'm working on and, and the other one that I have in the hopper, um, I had several chapters written before I even thought about doing an outline because I, 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 I don't know, I know some people could just like make up an outline for a story. I can't do that. I can't, it's got to sort of develop organically for me. And the thing that starts it percolating, the thing that starts whatever's going on in my cerebellum or whatever to, to start to generate these ridiculous ideas is, is the writing. Uh, and so, you know, once I've written two chapters, three chapters, at that point, usually things have started praying. and I'm starting to see who these characters are and where they could go, what, what, what they could do that could be really interesting. And that's, that's where I can start to put together an outline that again, you know, may or may not actually wind up matching the final story, depending on how things go. Yeah. So basically I'm a chaos monkey, I guess is what I'm trying to say. That's as, as a writer, that's, that's the, uh, the niche I've been. I'm, I'm like, I'd like to say I'm like chaotic good. I'm probably more like chaotic neutral. Gotcha. That makes sense. Well, I know I have personally, I've only read Mickey seven. I have not read your other works. Um, I am trying to, cause I've been to a couple bookstores and haven't been able to get them yet. My biggest problem when it comes to reading is I can't read ebook e format. I have to read either a physical or an audio. And so I know it's on my list to read. Um, and then I know um, book two in the Mickey seven series, which is antimatter blues is coming out in almost six, no, eight months. Eight months. Yeah, eight yep. months. So it's coming out, it's coming out quickly, <clears throat> which is very exciting. Yeah, the, the, um, yeah, you're not gonna find Three Days in April or The End of Ordinary in, in bookstores at this point, right? They, they, they came out a number of years ago in paperback. Uh, and so they're, whatever was in bookstores has been, unfortunately has probably been scrapped at this point. I mean, it's, they, they don't keep paperbacks hanging around bookstores for that period of time. Uh, but you can order them from, you know, Barnes and Noble or um, Amazon or, you know, wherever, wherever you want to get your books. So they are, they're still available. Yeah. I've been trying not to order books online at the moment because I go through bouts where when I do order books, I order too many books and it's not good. <laughs> <laughs> I can appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. They, they, they pile up quickly, don't they? Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I've got I've got a I've got a to be read stack that's uh, threatening to fall over and crush me in my sleep as well. I know how that goes. Yeah, I mean there are worse ways to die. So <laughs> yeah, oh, absolutely. Just ask Mickey. Yeah, there's all kinds of worse. Things. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's experienced just a few ways. Yeah, cr crushed by books is uh, that's that's really almost the best. Honestly, there, there's a lot of worse things that can happen. I think so too. <laughs> and then the, the last question I was going to ask you about, because I know um, I've been, you do have a special edition of Mickey seven, which came out through Android or press, uh, which is signed numbered. It has the, um, a different type of binding as well as the design on the hardcover itself. When it comes to special editions like that, do you get a say at all? Or is it kind of, they bring it to the publisher and say, Hey, we want to make a special edition. Great. And then that's kind of that. Um, yeah, it's pretty much, that's kind of that, um, basically, okay. <laughs> you know, um, I, I get a note from my agent that says, 
hey, they wanted to do a special edition. They're offering X amount of dollars, um, you know, which which goes towards uh, basically towards the um, advance counts against the advance. It's not like I get a check at that point. It yeah. just counts against the advance. Um, do you want to do it or not? And like, why would I say no? Obviously, I'm going to say yes. That sounds great. And and then they, <laughs> yeah. they do their thing. That's yeah. I don't I don't really have any involvement in that process. There's also uh, there's going to be a U.S. special edition coming out as well from Fantasia Press, um, which I think is going to be a little. Uh, if, if I understand correctly, it's going to be sort of weather bound and, you know, very, um, very hoity toity sort of sit on the sit on the bookshelf and be impressive kind of looking book, which I'm, I'm very, very excited to see. So that's 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 upcoming. They're just doing the print setting for that right now, I think. That's awesome. I'm going to have to keep my eyes open because that that's another one of my downfalls is I love special editions of books. And oh, like they're just they're so beautiful. <laughs> no, no. So, and then I end up with several editions of, cause I have the U S edition of Mickey seven, the Andrew Ritter press and soon the Fantasia one. So, <laughs> well, you know, it's, like I said, there's, there's, uh, there's worse ways you can spend your money too. There's, there's, uh, every, everybody has hobbies, everybody has things they worry and, and collecting books is, um, one, one of the best ways as far as I'm concerned to take care of all that disposable income. I mean, otherwise it just piles up in the corner and becomes a fire hazard. So. Exactly. Yeah, well, thank you so much for taking the time today to talk with me about Mickey 7 and about your other works. It's been so much fun. Thank you. I really, really appreciated it. Uh, and I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you as well. And of course, to anyone and everyone listening to this podcast, I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day as well. I do want to mention before you leave that if you wish to support this podcast, you can do so by purchasing Mickey 7 or any book through my bookshop.org page or joining my Patreon. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss a future episode.